It is our privilege to come once again and to open the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. We're in this section of the life-changing relevance of the gospel. We've seen those turning point words of Romans 12, 1 and 2, where the mercies of God are to lead us to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, and that we see that our minds are transformed by the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to have a mind that is transformed by the Holy Spirit, it will lead, first of all, to humility in the context of the church, then of a self-denying love to the church, then a self-denying love to our enemies where we are not free as individuals to vent our anger on them and take vengeance on them. And then that leads into this paragraph where we are to have submission uh, to the government. And we saw in our background to this as we surveyed the Old Testament and the New, that God has used various governments down through history. We saw that God has instituted the three spheres of government in the family, in the church, and in the civil government, and we are to fall into rank under that authority that is placed over us by God. We've seen that these are limited authorities, meaning that there are times when we may have to say to a family member, no, I'm going to obey God rather than men, what we find in Acts 4 and Acts 5. We see that God is absolute over every sphere of limited government. And then if we were looking at an outline for Romans 13, this paragraph, 1 to 7, this is what the outline would look like. And we were able to accomplish last week what is highlighted there in the pale yellow, the reality of submission to the government, uh, the reasons, and we just got the first of the reasons done. And so this morning, we're going to take up B and C And I wanted to keep that outline so it was straight and B, and then we end up getting all these subpoints. But in the end, uh, B becomes Roman numeral one on your handout sheet, and C becomes Roman numeral uh, two. Um, And as we come to this passage, we think of Romans written in uh, 57 AD. Nero came to the throne uh, in 54 AD. And as he's talking about submission and not rebellion, I think it's helpful to recognize that the first Jewish-Roman war began in 66 and ended in 73 AD. And it ended at Masada. Masada is pictured here. You can see how it rises. It's 2,000 feet above the Dead Sea off to the right, and if you look real closely at the top of the screen, you see that little bit of blue, which I believe is the the Dead Sea back there in uh, the background. Here's another view of Masada. This is where the last of the Jewish fighters held out with their families, and there's a siege work that comes up this side by the Romans, and just as the Romans were coming in, 
these Jewish rebels against the Roman power realized that they were done for, and rather than be um, uh, treated brutally by the conquering Romans, they committed mass suicide. If you're going to rebel against a government, you have to consider something of the serious consequences if you fail. Well, what do we know about punishments? We're going to talk today about the sword. The civil government has got the sword in its hand. What do we know about punishments in the time of the Romans? Well, they designed their punishments to discourage potential criminals. How you were punished depended on who you were and your position in Roman society. A slave could be crucified if he were involved in rebellion against the government. A citizen could not be crucified. Whipping and fines were the most common punishments. An enslaved person could be forced to carry a piece of wood around their neck that stated their crime. For various, very serious crimes, you could be killed by crucifixion, thrown from a cliff, thrown into a river, or even buried alive. Crucifixion was saved for serious crimes such as revolts against the empire. Now, I am not suggesting that we need to return to these kinds of punishments, but you can see that there is something of a deterrent that is built into these punishments. Uh, The Tarpeian Rock, that's that rock that we're seeing up there, some 80 feet above the street, was a steep cliff in ancient Rome. It was commonly used during the Roman Republic as an execution site. And so why why would they take somebody up there to uh, behead them? Well, they were not using the sword. They were just grabbing them and throwing them the 80 feet down uh, below. This is what that looks like, that very area here in a modern picture. Well, with those things in our minds, let's come uh, to take up the passage to look particularly at Roman numeral one, if you care to use your handout sheet. Roman numeral one is, why should we submit to the government? And I will argue, first of all, because of God's close connection with the civil government. Verse 4 and verse 6. What do I mean by God's close connection? Well, first of all, A, the civil governor is God's diaconal servant. Verse 4, for he is God's servant, God's diaconos, for your good. Later on in verse 4, for he is the servant of God. He is the deacon of God. God claims the civil government is his lowly servant. The deacon is one who originally had the sense of a table servant, of someone who is lowly. It also can have the sense of my servant that I send as an agent or as an intermediary. The civil government, God says, is my agent. I have placed him in power, verse 1, And I have given him a commission, and I regard him as my servant. There is this close connection. Now, this is sobering, folks. Paul is saying under inspiration that in God's view, Nero is my deacon. Nero came to power in 54, and Paul is writing this three years 
later. The ruler is never on his own. He exists as God's agent. He is under God. And even though Nero came to power because his mother, Agrippina, married Claudius, who ruled for 13 years, and Agrippina wanted her son to rule, Nero, who was, a, was only an adopted son of Claudius, so she poisoned the, the former ruler. He's gone. The powers that be are the powers that be, and Nero is the power that exists. And God says, he's my deacon. This is stretching. God wants men to know that there was a right and wrong in this world. God wants us to know as Christians, Nero was not a good guy. And, and, and someone could think in terms of, well, maybe when Paul was writing this at 57, he didn't realize how bad Nero was going to become in the next years. And I almost could convince myself of that until I remember that Scripture is breathed out by God. And God, the Holy Spirit, knew what Nero was going to become. God's governor is going to keep man from running wild. And that's why these restraints are in place. Secondly, B. The civil governor is God's political servant, verse 6. And from verse 6, we find that the minister of God there is a Greek term, leturgos, that the root is normally used of worship services. We get our word liturgy from this Greek term, our form of worship, what is included in worship, and for good reason, because when this Greek word is used in the Old Testament, it is used of, uh, in the sense, those things associated with worship. A lot of things for the priests uh, would be associated with this word. But at the time of the New Testament, this term had a technical use in the Greek culture of a political servant. One who, if, if you had enough wealth, it was just expected that you are going to do certain things for society, so we have volunteered you to do such and such, and as you do that, you're called this term, this kind of minister, this kind of liturgos. It came to be used at the time of the New Testament to all kinds of service to the community that a person does, whether voluntary or constrained. So God describes his servant, God describes Nero as his servant, as this political servant as well. And God claims that the civil government is working for me. He's mine. Nero is my political servant. Now, of course... I don't mean to suggest that God thought that Nero was a wonderful individual. Unless he repented, he is under the wrath of God and that for all eternity. Still, what we have to understand 
is that when civil government came in at Genesis 9, right after the flood, it was because God in Genesis 6 saw the violence that was throughout humanity. Genesis 6 and verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. And what grieved him was verse 5, that he saw that the wickedness was great. And then verse 7, it is, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 11, and the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was filled with violence. And then we have, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then the flood comes. So what are we to learn? Well, a civil governor, even if his name is Nero, can be used by God to provide restraint on society. If we just let all of us as rebel humans be as bad as we want to be with no restraint, then we're going to get really bad and we're going to destroy one another. Or God will have to come with another flood. And so God says that I'm going to use what may be a rough character to provide some sort of balance and restraint in society. Are you feeling nervous? God's deacon, God's political servant. Well, thirdly now, God, the civil governor is God's avenger. Latter part of verse 4. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Remember back in Romans 12 and verse 19, if someone wrongs you, you're not allowed to take personal vengeance. We're to leave it to God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. That word of vengeance is the noun form of the verb, uh, it is the verbal form in verse 19 of chapter 12 to the noun now, same word. You can't do it, but my minister can do it if it is a wrong that is against society. So if you kill a man, if you kill a woman, if you maim a dozen children, another 10 adults, like what happened in Kansas City, then God wants the people, wants the police to find you. God wants you to be convicted in a court. And God wants you to be dealt with because of that crime. God's avenger enacts some of God's wrath. Now we know there's going to be a final day of judgment. But God does not want, that. how many times have you heard me say, this sin-cursed world? And that's what we are. And this sin-cursed world, simply left to itself, is going to destroy itself. There will be violence 
that just abounds. And it's sobering to us, at least it's sobering to me, to hear God speak of a civil governor as his deacon, as his political servant, and as his avenger, when the guy who's on the throne is Nero, who got into power incidentally because his mom poisoned Claudius, the earlier emperor. Oh, and by the way, Nero poisoned his own mother and his wife. He's my servant. He's my, it, it, in a sin-cursed world, in this bad, bad situation of sin ruling the hearts of men, I am going to have some sort of restraints so they don't all destroy one another. Yes, it is. Only a limited authority in the civil government. And there will be times when we need to obey God rather than man, and it may cost us. In my reading through the Old Testament, I came across this week of, you remember how the midwives were told by Pharaoh, you kill all of the boys? Well, take that little detail and put that into the the whole attitude towards Pharaoh and see how Moses, though he didn't start a rebellion, at the revelation that came from God, Moses did stand against Pharaoh and said, what was it, seven times? Let my people go. And if you want to know when is it time for you to start a rebellion, I'm not suggesting this. But, but, but that is no little thing where the ruler over you says, for all of this ethnic group that are under me, I want all the males killed. That's not exactly what we're facing. And we will likely look on the Neros and the Bidens and the Trumps of the world. I'm not saying they're not God's servant. I'm saying they are. They have been. We can easily find human rulers in this sin-cursed world that have faults that are rather evident. But we have to understand from God's point of view, he's not putting an altogether perfect individual over men in this sin-cursed world. Normally, he puts very flawed individuals there. But the normal course of the Christian is for us to recognize that we've got to fall into rank. We've got to fall into our position. We have to submit to those who are over us. And I hope that this will stick in your mind and my mind that Nero is God's deacon. And Nero is God's political servant. And Nero is God's avenger of God's wrath. Roman numeral two. So we've seen God's close connection. Why should we submit? Because God's close connection to these guys. Even though they are far apart morally. Roman numeral two. Because of the usefulness of the civil government. 
First of all, A, the civil government discourages bad behavior. Here it is in verse 2. Again, the first part of verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who will, will resist, who resist, will incur judgment. There's our principle that we want to get. The civil government is going to say, if you're going to behave in this bad way, if you are going to steal from other people, if you are going to murder people, then there is going to be a consequence that comes to you. You are going to incur judgment. First of all, from verse 2, resisting God's civil government leads to judgment, incurs judgment. God has appointed this authority and if you fight against it, then you're going to have some consequences. And it's, it's interesting to me, this is written 57 AD. 66 AD, the Jews back in Palestine are rebelling and saying, Rome, go home. And Rome doesn't want to go home. And instead of going home, they march their troops in and they destroy Jerusalem. And they march their troops and the people up in the area of Galilee are hiding in caves. I was there and I, and I remember it because they described that during this Roman occupation is there, you're going to rebel against Caesar, you're going to have judgment. And they have these ropes and they'd swing down with a kind of meat hook and they'd catch people that were in those caves and then pull them up and then throw them out. Horrible. And then 73 AD, you think of the group there left at Masada, that's the end. When Masada falls, that's the end. And they all fall by committing mass suicide because they don't want their sons and daughters to be sold into slavery and much worse. This is just nine years after Paul wrote Romans. Calvin says this error, however possessed, this error that nobody's going to rule over me. We are the Jewish people. We are our own government. This error, however, possessed the minds of the Jews above all others, for it seemed to them disgraceful that the offspring of Abraham, whose kingdom flourished before the Redeemer's coming, should now, after his appearance, continue in submission to another power. But there are consequences for resisting. They incur judgment. It's a, it's a temporal punishment. We see it there in history. Now, let me, for those of you thinking rebellion is there in the, in the front of your mind, or you go there from time to time, think in terms of this. Claudius ruled for 13 years. Nero ruled for 13 years, and Nero didn't get elected. He got in by poisoning. Galba led a rebellion and he ruled for seven years, or no, seven months. Otho, never heard of him. You want to know why I've never heard of him? You've never heard of him? He ruled for three months. 
And Vitalius ruled for eight months, and then Vespasian ruled for ten years. And these are the men who ruled at the top of the Roman government from that period of 66 to 73 during the time of this uh, the Jewish-Roman War, one, two, three, four, five different rulers. And none of them, I believe, came in by election, all rebellions. So rebellions happened. But they don't always have a positive outcome. Resistance to God's civil government will lead to judgment. Number two, bad behavior leads to terror or fear of the government. Now here I invite you to look with me at verse 3 and 4. And I want you to see three words that are linked together by the Apostle Paul. For rulers are not a terror in the ESV. That's the word phobos, phobia, fear. In the latter part of verse 3, would you have no fear? Would you have no phobia? No phobos? And then verse 4, but if you do wrong, be afraid. Be terrified. Just, you just need to see it's the same word that he's, that he's underscoring here. Three uses of the word for fear in verse 3 and 4. And this is the terror of a man or woman who says, I am about to be executed. The sword is about to sever my head from the rest of my body. They do not bear the sword in vain. Do not steal, the government says. Do not murder, it says. But if I do, there is going to be, consequ- there is going to be a consequence that comes. Calvin. Now, the utility, the usefulness of this, the civil government, is this. That the Lord is designed in this way to provide for the tranquility of the good and to restrain the waywardness of the wicked. By these two things, the safety of mankind is secured. So, for except the fury of the wicked be resisted and the innocent be protected from their violence, all things would come to an entire confusion. Since then, this is the only remedy by which mankind can be preserved from destruction. It ought to be carefully observed by us unless we wish to avow ourselves as public enemies of the human race. What he's saying is this. Accept the place of the civil government. Accept that the civil government has a number of severe punishments at its disposal And that civil government is not perfect. We can't even call it good. But it produces something that is good. The Roman government was not perfect. But they provided something. It was good in comparison to what Rome would have been like with no government. When each man does what is right in his own eyes, and what's right in my eye is that I take what belongs to you. And if you've got a problem with it, I'm going to shut you up. That's what is right in my eyes. 
Number three, as we're looking at these verses, little number three, you don't have it on your handout, but here it is for me. Capital punishment leads to fear. Latter part of verse four. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Be terrified. For he does not bear the sword in vain. Be afraid. Present imperative. Keep going on. If you've had a history of stealing, if you've had a history of murdering, you need to be looking over your shoulder. Because someday the sword is going to catch up with you. Remember what I've already said. Genesis 9 is the beginning. Verse 5, verse 6. For your lifeblood I will require reckoning from every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. If you kill a man, your life is forfeit. If you murder that individual. And here, verse 4, Paul speaks of the sword. You don't pull a sword out and beat somebody on the back with it. It, it, it's, It's a weapon of death. And what it means is that the civil government has the sword, the worst punishment, and they've got all the lesser punishments under it. Acts 12 and verse 2, it's abundantly plain what the sword means. Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Acts 16, 27. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Here we're to think that little 18-inch blade of the Roman sword that's particularly good for those soldiers in close contact fighting. And Paul, as a Roman citizen, knew that he would not be crucified. But he was killed with this Roman sword. Not because he was a bad man. That's when things get all twisted around. And yet, Paul can say that overall, the civil government has a place that is for your good. You who do righteousness. Bonnie and Clyde can arrogantly rob banks throughout the Midwest but they better look over their shoulders because there is a time in which those law enforcement, they are not getting away again. And you've seen how that plays out. Leon Morris writes, Paul's point is that it is folly for subjects to do what displeases the government for the authorities have great punitive capacity. The sword gives this extreme form of punishment, but they've got fines. They've got restitution. The Bible talks about you steal. You steal, then you've got to make repayment. What is it, three times, four times? It's an effective deterrent. Banishment. But if we come along and say, well, we don't need the Bible. We don't need punishments as deterrents. Humanity is really not like the Bible says. 
And, and so we're going to do a social experiment and somebody can commit a crime and say, well, it's not really their fault. They, they need more education. They need more things. And then this, the, this won't happen. Professor Murray writes, there is a tendency in present day thinking to underestimate the punitive in the execution of the government and to suppress this all-important aspect of the magistrate's authority. And I don't want to be unkind. I don't want to be insensitive. I don't want to... But broadly speaking, the Bible says that the civil magistrate does not bear the sword in vain. There really is not a question on the interpretation of what that means. Paul applied it to himself. He's before Festus in Acts 25 and verse 11. He said, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. You see, I'm writing to the Romans, and I put this down there, and I apply the same principle. You're the civil governor. You know as well as I know that I've not done anything to the Jews that I deserve to die. 1 Kings 2. This is a time when David is dying and godly King David is talking to godly King Solomon and he is saying to Solomon, you know, Joab, I let him off. I let him off because he was my general. And it wasn't really right for me to kill my cousin, my first cousin. But Solomon, I want you to remember that in a time of peace, he settled his vengeance that happened in a time of war. Don't allow his gray head to go down to the grave in peace. And he said, while we're talking about it, there's Shimei, the Benjamite. He was the one who uttered those awful curses, Absalom's rebellion and David's having to go out. And he's on just out of sight or out of distance of an arrow, but close enough that his voice would calling down curses on David the king. And godly King David, at his deathbed, says, don't allow his gray head to come down to the grave in peace. So A, the civil government discourages bad behavior. Secondly, B, the civil government encourages good behavior. Verses 3 and 4. Magistrates may from this learn what their vocation is. What, what, what do we need the civil government for? We need them to encourage good behavior, and we need them to discourage bad behavior. We need them to work in such a way so that 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, we may lead a quiet life. That's the best thing for the church. Practical observations. Two reasons. Why do we submit? Because of God's close connection to the government. 
because of the usefulness of the civil government in a sin-cursed world, practical observations, and I'm going to just take one. The civil government is responsible to deter wickedness. I think I put it in the heading A. Punishments are to be a deterrence against further sin. Williamson writes of the growing trend in our nation, this is probably from 50 years ago, in, in abolishing capital punishment. We should not have this. And we live in a day when someone can break into a store. In California, they had Proposition 47 and said that if you don't steal more than $950 worth of merchandise, then this will be treated as a misdemeanor and not as a felony. And, and that's not been going real well. And so they have just signed, uh, Governor Newsom has just signed a new law that uh, allows these thing, these crimes to be treated as a felony. AP writing on this says, however, police agencies in California will have to contend with local prosecutors who decide whether to charge an offender with a misdemeanor or a felony, if at all. Well, our study in Romans 13 is extremely relevant. As Pastor John Price writes, because of the harmful, disordering effects of sin, God established the civil magistrate to preserve the order of society and the well-being of those who live in it. When we look through those passages, particularly in Deuteronomy, you have false gods, then you, you, two are, you are to confront this crime. Now, that's a church, nation, state. I... I I mentioned that as we read. I'm not arguing that the government has that. I'm simply arguing the general principle, somebody does something wrong, the punishment is to be such that people will hear and fear. Deuteronomy 13 and verse 11, and all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do such wickedness as this among you. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 13, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 20, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Deuteronomy 21, it's the same principle of hearing and fearing. Yes, but there have been sociological studies that have been done that show that capital punishment is really not that effective. I'm sorry if I have to choose that sociological study or the Word of God. I don't need a long time to think about that. And this is what God says these punishments do. They do deter. Proverbs 19 and verse 25 says, strike a scoffer and the simple will learn prudence. The purpose of the punishment, I grant, and it may seem callous, that it does not do everything to reform that individual. Well, I want us to reform that individual. I want us to bring the gospel to that individual to see them forgiven, to see them transformed. But the goal of government is to say, 
we've got this bad apple. We need to address this bad apple in a stern way so that we won't have 27 other more bad apples. Proverbs 21 and verse 11, when a scoffer is punished, the simple becomes wise. And we've got it in the New Testament, even the church, in the category of elders. 1 Timothy chapter 5, whole paragraph on eldership. One verse says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The next verse says, as for those who persist in sin... And it would seem elders persisting in sin rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? What's the goal? So that the rest may stand in fear. That's that same principle. We're not going to tolerate this kind of open sin. So punishments are to be a deterrence against further sin. But then finally, B, what needs to be said? Punishments cannot change the heart. So we talk one thing about what the government needs to do, and we talk about what we as a church, what we as Christians need to do. Punishments cannot change the heart. John Price again. Many Christians today place their hope for impacting culture in civil government by engaging in political activism, lobbying, demonstrations, and other measures, including civil disobedience. I'll skip over part and just come to Dr. MacArthur. Even social and political activities that are perfectly worthwhile can deplete the amount of a believer's time, energy, and money that is available for the central work of the gospel. The focus is shifted from the call to build a spiritual kingdom through the gospel to efforts to moralize culture. You see, I could, I could focus on Romans 13 and verse 4, what the civil government, and we could go on and on and on on that. But is that what you want? You simply want a culture that is morally restrained? No, we want something more than that. Efforts to moralize culture, trying to change society from the outside rather than individuals from the inside. Just careful, careful wording there. The focus is on individuals, one heart at a time, being radically changed by the gospel. When the church is politicized, even in support of good causes, its spiritual power is vitiated and its moral influence diluted. If you are a criminal, I don't know how many criminals will listen to me, but If you are a criminal, it may be a good thing that the civil government brings a punishment to you to help you see that you're a sinner. That's a good first step. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that's not enough. And time and again, when we go through these passages where Paul is referring to, to the civil government, whether it's Titus 3 and verse 1, he ends up with the gospel. 
And if we look in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, you need to pray for kings and those who are in authority. And then he just goes very naturally into the gospel. God, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul moves from, you pray, we want peace. We want tranquility for the church so the gospel can go forward. It's too much of a distraction if people are are worried about whether or not they're going to make it through the night. And Paul moves on to Jesus as the one mediator between God and man. And what equips Jesus to represent God to man and man to God? Well, it's because he is the ransom for all. He's the payment price. And he's the payment price because he lived a perfect life and he died that perfect sacrificial death on the cross. And on the one hand, Jesus' death was a travesty because a perfectly righteous man was being killed by the civil government. But on the other hand, God was loading his son with the sins of his people and putting him through hell so that those who believe in him wouldn't have to go through hell. So please don't stop with the external morality of the Bible. The Bible's got something that you do this, you're going to get the hammer. So don't do it. Moralize culture. Somebody needs to work on that. That's not my calling. Don't stop with the external morality of the Bible. Get to the heart of biblical Christianity by understanding who Jesus is and giving your life to him by faith. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We find it challenging. We find it, in some ways, even difficult to comprehend how the Apostle Paul could refer to someone like Nero as your deacon, as your political servant, as your avenger. And yet we understand what man is like, now left to himself, that would just be violence that flows out of selfishness. And so, our God, we pray that you would help our civil governments in the world to fulfill their role of providing peace and tranquility. And we ask that we may experience that here, that the gospel may go forward in power. But we thank you that you lead us consistently back to the cross of your son. He's the one mediator. He's the one who has died as the ransom for all. He gave his lifeblood to pay the the price of the ransom And we would ask, Lord, that some hearing this 
would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be forgiven and be transformed. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.